Hunting season has arrived again, in case you're not aware. Most of you know that I really enjoy deer hunting. I enjoy being out there. I enjoy the, the activity. At the most basic level, though, when you get down to it, deer hunting really is a lot of waiting. A lot of waiting. I enjoy that because I'm out there with my books and I spend time reading out, out in the open air. So I enjoy the waiting part, but it really is a lot of waiting. You, you wait for the uh, appropriate moment. You, you wait to spot a deer. And then, having spotted deer, you wait to see if they will come within range. And then if the deer comes within range, you wait to see if they will give you a good shot. Will they come close enough, or should I wait a little bit longer? Will they come closer? You wait for them to, to turn and position themselves. Do I need to take the shot now with the way the deer is positioned, or will there be a higher probability shot if I just wait a little bit? There's a lot of waiting involved. But that's life, isn't it? All of life is a lot of waiting. In fact, both of our texts today, this morning and this evening, focus around this idea that, that we are waiting and waiting and waiting. One of the things that we have to wait for is the idea contained in our sermon title, justice. God's justice. We want justice, but we spend an awful lot of life waiting for it. This morning, we're going to continue our series through the, the book of the Psalms, uh, through the third book of, this, of the Psalter. As you know, each psalm is an independent poem or, or really a song in many cases. These were poems set to music, just like what we've just enjoyed for the last three songs, poems set to music. Sometimes within the, the Psalter, we can detect there's some connection in the final arrangements. They're, they're placed together, and that seems to be the case here. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 74, and that was a, a psalm that came out of the agony that the nation felt when the city of Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C., when the Babylonians conquered the nation. There was great pain, there was great suffering, and the people were, were longing for God to show that He had not abandoned them. The psalmist gave voice to a desperate cry of agony, and he directed our emotions through that psalm to, to flow toward a yearning to God, or for God, really, to vindicate himself. This morning, we come to another psalm of yearning. Once again, the emotions are yearning for something. This time, the yearning is for God to display his justice. There, there's nothing in, in the psalm that indicates what the historical setting might have been when, when the psalmist wrote it originally. It is something that could have happened at many times. It, it seems as if probably the nation is experiencing some sort of impending danger. But that's all we can say. If you have your Bibles open by this time, you may notice that at least the New American Standard has a title that says, For the Choir Director, set to L. Tasheth. Most likely, El Tasheth was the name of a tune. That, that was the tune that the song was sung to. It was the name of a tune, but I, I think some of our other English translations are a little more helpful than the New American Standard because they translate the Hebrew words into English. El Tasheth literally means do not destroy. That, that doesn't sound like a tune for happy time, does it? Do not destroy. That, that sounds like a tune for times of trouble. 
Now, we, we shouldn't make too much out of the header, but it may give us a, a clue to understand the circumstances that address this psalm. Something is happening to the nation, and, and the, the prayer is that God would not destroy them. What we see is that people are waiting for God's justice. Yet the lesson that, that comes out of this psalm, the lesson that is applicable to us as much as to them, is that we praise God for his justice, even as we wait for it to come. Praising God while we wait. That is the display of faith that is expected to, to come to those of us who believe in God. We praise God for his justice, even as we wait for it to come. This psalm is a short one, so we're going to read it all the way through in one pass. Again, I would encourage you this week to read the psalm daily, meditate upon it, and pray over some of the ideas in it. Let it guide your affections to align themselves with God's revelation. Yearn for the things that God tells us we should yearn for. Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks. For your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. When I selected an appropriate time, or when I selected an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. I said with the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. But as for me, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And all the horns of the wicked he will cut off. But the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. We praise God for his justice, even as we wait for it to come. Let's look at four points from this psalm this morning. Four points that, that support this general lesson, that, that we wait for God's justice. And while we're waiting, we're praising God. First point, first we must recognize the Lord has a plan for justice. The Lord has a plan. Skipping past verse 1 for a bit, that's the idea that, that the psalmist develops here in verses 2 and 3. The Lord has a plan for justice. This is really where I think we can see a little bit of the arrangement in the Psalter, where this psalm in its final arrangement of the Psalter was placed after Psalm 74. Look back for a moment at Psalm 74 at verse 22. If that psalm concluded, the, the writer of that psalm, remember the, the city of Jerusalem is in destruction. The, the psalmist cries out at the end, Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Well, Psalm 75, in essence, is almost a response to that. In, in essence, the, the Psalm 74, the psalmist was ending saying, Come on, God, do something about these wicked people. Well, in a sense, verses 2 and 3 is God's response to that plea. Our psalmist, speaking 
for God in these verses. No first person. This is God's words being conveyed. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. It is I. That, that's emphatic in the original Hebrew. God is saying, I have a plan. And that plan will unfold according to the timetable that I have determined. God is saying, I personally guarantee this plan. It is a good plan. It is an equitable plan. It will bring equity to all injustice. Essentially, God is saying, trust me. Trust me. To, to me, as I was thinking through this, this is a bit like probably a situation every parent that has multiple children has experienced at some point. One child has dealt wrongly with another child. And the, the offended child comes running to mom and dad to, to plead their case. I, I remember some of those appeal, appeals for justice for my children as, as they come up and, and beg me to, to take care of the other one who did something. And once I understand the situation, though, as I know what's happened, usually my response was somewhere along lines of, relax, I will take care of it. You don't have to take matters in your own hands. I'll deal with it. Now, I expected that would be sufficient, that the wrong child would then go about their day and trust that dad would deal with the issue, that I would make the situation right and that justice would be dealt. Well, God is stating that he has a plan for justice. He's telling us that he has a plan. That word equity that we find at the end of verse 2, that, that means that, that God's justice will be straight. It will be direct. It will be upright. The, the sovereign God has appointed a time in which he will deal with all true injustice. That should be good enough. That should be all we need to hear. After all, God reminds us He is the one who established the world in the first place. He set the pillars where they are. He is in control. The, the first line of verse 3 seems to suggest that, that God may have even intentionally told us He's holding off delivering justice until the whole earth is shaking or melting. The Hebrew could be translated either way. In other words, he's holding off until it becomes clear that there is nothing that we can do about it. We cannot right things ourselves. Only God can address it. Friends, we see this basic idea over and over in Scripture. We, we see it actually again tonight in our passage in Zechariah. God has a plan for justice. God has a plan that he's executing according to his own timetable, and that should be sufficient. We also see repeatedly in Scripture that his timeline does not line up with our way of looking at things, because his way of looking at things is totally different than ours. Nino quoted in his prayer, Isaiah 55, 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. 2 Peter 3, 8, we're told that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Sadly, it seems no matter how often we come across this idea in Scripture, we still find ourselves impatient with God. 
Come on, God. Do it now. We complain that his plan isn't fast enough. His justice isn't good enough. We, we get impatient and we cry out to God and essentially try then to help God. What we need to do is listen to what God says. It is I who judge with equity. We don't need anything more. We praise God for his justice even as we wait for it to come. That is the idea that, that's being developed here in this psalm, and it begins with this idea God has a plan for justice. That's the point brought out in verses 2 and 3. Now in 4 and 5, we add a second point. God warns those deserving justice. He warns those who deserve justice. Again, our psalmist is continuing to relay the Lord's word. It's still God speaking through the psalmist here. But, but now they're directed straight at the, the boastful and the wicked, the, the sinners. These are people who are living without regard for God. They, they ignore his commandments. They, they act as if he doesn't even exist. They're prideful. They're arrogant. Specifically, we're told they take pride in their own strength and their own power. That, that's the image created here by this reference to a horn. A horn symbolizes strength and might and power. They're lifting up their own strength and might saying, I have it. Their trust is in themselves. They refuse to acknowledge there, there is someone far greater than them. Their outstretched neck, which is the literal translation of the last word there in verse 5, displays insolent pride. New American Standard translates it that way for us, so we know the symbol. They have an outstretched, natch that, uh, outstretched neck that shows their insolent pride, and that offends God. Well, God's message to these people is simple. Stop it. Stop thinking like that. Stop living as if you rule your own life. Recognize that God has authority over you. In essence, God is, is warning them, bow before me. Now, I want us to think a little bit about these verses. These words are directed to those who deserve justice, but we're reading them in a song that is sung by the people of God who are yearning for justice. It really is unlikely that any of these boastful, arrogant people that are being warned in these verses will ever sing this song. After all, they ignore God. They're not the ones joining in the worship of, of God's people singing these songs together ultimately they are not the intended recipients of the message here god's people are god's people are the ones who will sing these words so so what is the message that these words of warning for the arrogant had what is the message for god's people their arrogance has offended god but not only has it offended God, it has not in any sense caused God to question his sovereign control. They're shaking their fist, they're displaying their own power, they're, they're showing the whole world, I am great. And God is saying, you haven't shaken me one bit. I am still in sovereign control. I still have the ability to deliver justice. God, in other words, is still God. Unless these wicked repent of their wicked ways, they will experience God's justice. 
God wants to make sure his people know that they can count on that. This is another reminder that we need repeatedly. Don't we? We see all kinds of wickedness happening in our world around us. And we need to be reminded over and over and over again that what we see happening in the world is not the ultimate reality. To our eyes, too often it appears as if the wicked are winning. Day after day, we, we, we are forced to listen to their pride-filled speech and arrogance as they promote themselves and they boast about their wicked exploits. We, we see, and in, in, in often in a very personal way, we feel the projection of their power as their, their wickedness is forced onto our culture. And over time, rather than living as the victors we are in Christ, we, we start living as if we are the defeated survivors crawling out of rubble after the battle is over. We need verses like this, tucked into the songs of faith given to the faithful to remind us that, that what the wicked are claiming is not real. We need reminded that of that because all week long we hear about the progressive movements on our campuses or the, the powerful arrogance in the halls of Washington. Those things are not real. They do not represent the ultimate reality. For the most part, what we hear in those places is simply arrogant failings against God. They represent the arrogant failing to heed the warning of God. Yet whether they, re, whether they heed Him or not, God remains unshaken. He remains God. All that happens from their arrogant flailings against him is that he is more and more offended by their boasting and insolent pride. That is reality. We praise God for his justice even as we wait for it to come. The Lord warns those deserving of justice. That's the second point that we find here in verses 4 and 5. Next, we add a point from verses 6, 7, and 8. That point is that the Lord personally executes his plan. Personally. Each of the verses, 6, 7, and 8, begin with the same Hebrew word. It's a word that could be translated indeed, although I don't think any of our English versions do. In fact, I don't know of any of our English versions that translate the beginning of the verse with the same word because it just doesn't work well in English syntax. But the repetitive sound of these three verses will have struck the ear of the original readers. Our psalmist is reflecting on, on what God has said in the previous verses. It's no longer God speaking, it's now the psalmist's reflections. Indeed, these are the things that are true based on what God just said. Now, verse 6 is difficult to translate in our English version, so there's variation, but the general meaning is clear. The, the psalmist realizes there is no place on earth that is safe from the wicked. That the the people of God cannot look for human help to come from any place to rescue them. But that doesn't matter because verse 7 says God is coming. And that means that while there's nowhere that we can escape from the, the wicked, likewise there's nowhere the wicked can escape from God. 
God is the judge, capital J. He is coming. He will bring down anyone who falsely exalted himself. At the same time, he will lift up any of those who were wrongly downtrodden by the wicked. He will lift up the righteous and bring down the unrighteous. He is the judge. Remember, lines of poetry are designed to create pictures in our minds. They're, they're dense. They, we have to spend time thinking about them to unpack them. Well, one of the pictures here is this picture of the cup. The, the image of a cup filled with wine representing the wrath of God is a common picture throughout scriptures, one common in the, the prophets. We, we find in Isaiah, we find in Jeremiah, we find in Habakkuk. Later in biblical history, we find in Revelation again. This image that we have here in verse 8 is a powerful picture for our minds of God's wrath coming on people. I'm sure we've all heard the phrase, if you want something done, you have to what? Do it yourself. Sometimes there's things that are so important that you dare not delegate them to someone else. Well, God is certainly one who will do it right. Verse 8 pictures God himself personally ensuring that his wrath is poured out in full. The cup of wrath is in his hand. It's full. The, the, the wine is foaming. It's well mixed. In other words, it is at the perfect point to be drunk. It's ready to be consumed. The anger has reached the point that God has determined the time has come to do something. God is going to address all the injustice that, that has been committed. Every injustice that has ever been upon this world is going to be dealt with through his cup of wrath. So what does he do? The picture is he takes each person personally, he holds the cup up to their lips, and he pours it and forces them to drink till every last drop goes down. Wrath to the fullest. They cannot escape every drop of his punishment. Of course, the question that always comes to our mind is when? When will this occur? Will will God get fed up enough with the wicked and their wickedness that we're enduring so that he'll do something now? Will it happen in our lifetime or do we have to wait for the end of times? I don't know. That's the answer. I don't know. And neither do you. Biblical history is filled with pictures and and records of, of God punishing people. We have example after example of God punishing people for their wickedness. We, we have the flood where God judged all the earth except for Noah's family because of their wickedness. We have the, the plagues that God poured on the nation of Israel as he, or on the nation of Egypt as he formed the nation of Israel. All judging Egypt for their wickedness causing his people to be slaves. We have the Babylonian exile that we talked about a couple weeks ago with Psalm 74 God used the Babylonians to judge the wickedness in Israel. And then God used the Persian Empire to judge the Babylonians for their wickedness. We have example after example that God has and does judge in the here and now of history. Yet we also know that each of these judgments, Scripture tells us, is but a foreshadowing of the final judgment that comes at the end of history. Our Lord will come as the final judge. He will pour down his wrath upon all rebels and he will put down all rebellion. 
And more significantly, he will bring each rebel individually before his throne. Revelation 20 refers to the great white throne. On that day, the final pouring of God's wrath on every arrogant, wicked rebel will be completed. Every rebel will find himself or herself condemned to the lake of fire for all eternity. The Lord will see to it personally. Are you listening? This morning, are you one of the arrogant ones that are lifting up your pride today? Do you think that you can get through life without bowing to God? You may get through life, but you will not get through the white throne judgment. It, it doesn't matter if you think you're a good person. If you will not acknowledge that you need a Savior, if you will not acknowledge that God sent Jesus Christ as His Son to die in your place for your sins, you are lifting your fist up at God and shaking in rebellion at Him. You're a rebel. You're arrogant. And you will face the Lord personally when He executes His plan of judgment. Don't. Bow before him now. Bow before him before it's too late. Accept the, the loving redemption that he offers in Christ. Talk to me. At the end of the service, talk to me this week. Talk to me. Send me an email. Talk to me. Let me share with you how Jesus can take the wrath of God in your place. Let me show you what he has already done for the God of justice. We praise God for his justice, even as we wait for it to come. That the third point is that the Lord personally executes his plan. The Lord has a plan for justice. He warns those deserving justice, and he will personally execute his plan of justice. To those three points, the first three points, we add a final one. Final one directed really to the redeemed, those who are waiting. We praise God for his justice. We praise God for his justice. Praise wraps up all the verses we've just considered. Praise wraps the three points we just looked at. Look at verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks. Verse 9. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. Praise, that, that's the fitting response of the people of God to the plan of God that he's bringing his justice. Dejection, discouragement, those are not fitting responses for the people of God. Grumbling and complaining, completely inappropriate for the people of God. Praise, we praise God for his justice. Before I conclude, I want to think about praise along a couple of different lines. Two different lines based on what the psalmist writes in the first verse and then the last two verses. One, we praise God when he delivers justice and while we wait. We praise God when he delivers justice and while we wait. There have been times, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, that God has delivered justice within the, the confines of history. It's occurred. The psalmist recognizes that as well. Look at verse 1. Men 
Declare your wondrous works. There have been all those past examples of God's mighty works where he brings justice to the enemies of the nation of Israel. He displays his power, his justice. The psalmist has heard them declared over and over in his lifetime. And those past acts demonstrate the, the nearness of God. The psalmist is confident. God is near. At the same time, look at verse 10. There, there's debate whether that verse should be translated as God speaking again, I will cut off, or the psalmist speaking, he will cut off. Again, compare your English versions, you'll find both. But in either case, it's clear the, that what the psalmist intends is that praise be lifted up to God for his work. Praise be lifted up because he's confident that God will deliver justice in the future. Absolute justice. It just hasn't happened yet. But it is coming. The, the horns of the wicked will be cut off while the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. God will ensure a complete reversal of fortune as he administers justice. So while he waits, our psalmist praises God. Folks, this really is the attitude of the godly. This is the attitude of the godly. We praise as we wait. Our hope for justice lies in God alone, not in any current circumstance. We've seen plenty of displays of God's wondrous works in the past so that we can have complete confidence in his promise for the future. After all, the son has already walked out of the grave, hasn't he? We're here because this is the Lord's day. The day he walked out of the grave. That is history. The cross work of Christ is finished. Bringing judgment upon those who, who reject God, that's really small by comparison to God raising his son from the dead, having conquered sin and death. We're waiting for the lesser thing. Our praise should not be lesser, though. Our praise should be greater. It should not be small. It should reflect the magnitude of our God. Our God of justice. We, we should praise God for all that he has done to display his justice. There, there are times where we see God set the record straight. We, we see it in small ways, and as it may be, but we do see at times where men are caught in their wicked deeds and, and consequences come. God's justice is served. We, we see times where more virtuous leaders or even more virtuous nations, they, they, they win out over less virtuous leaders and nations. And we can praise God for these, these times within our history where we see justice. We also should praise God for his commitment to future justice, the time when all injustice will come. Because we look back at the cross and we see that justice was served. So we praise God and wait for when that cross work finds its full culmination as our Savior returns. We know then all the injustices of life will be rectified. So we should praise God for that future. I also am going to suggest today that we should praise God that we are waiting for that future. We should praise God for his delayed justice. His delayed justice because 
while we wait for his full justice, his long-suffering is providing a, a window of opportunity for mercy to work. His long-suffering is providing an opportunity in which his mercy can operate. None of us would have an eternity in heaven if God's final justice had fallen before we had the opportunity to accept Christ. Every day that God delays is another opportunity for us to share with someone the good news of Jesus Christ so that that person can also avoid God's final justice. God's mercy is operating in the very fact that, that we are here waiting for his final justice. We can praise God when he delivers his justice and while we wait. That's the first line to, to think about as we praise God for his justice. A second line to consider is that, that we praise God corporately and individually for his justice. Corporately and individually. Look again at verse 1. We give thanks. Now look at verse 9. I will praise. I will sing praises. I will declare. There, there's a corporate aspect and there's an individual aspect here of praising God. God's people should praise Him for His justice. I and you should praise God for His justice. That, that personal pronoun I is emphatic in verse 9. Our, our psalmist is emphasizing that he is clearly distinguished from the wicked. They are these things, but as for me, the wicked are going to drink the cup of God's judgment. But as for me, in contrast to the wicked, the psalmist says, I have the privilege of declaring God's praise forever. Forever being able to declare that God is a just God. The psalmist has the privilege of singing praises to God forever. Gathering together for corporate worship, that, that should be the highlight of our life here on earth. This is where we come closest to ultimate reality, is when we gather together to praise our God. After all, this is what we are going to do for all eternity. This is as close to ultimate reality as we come. This is as close to heaven as we can get. We come together to praise our God for His justice. We should relish the opportunity to come each week and unite our voices together to join with one another, praising what God has accomplished at the cross. As the Exchange Bible study makes so clear, God is a holy God. Our songs this morning brought that out as well. God is a holy God, but as our psalm shows, He's also a just God. That means we have a problem because God's justice demands God's holy wrath to fall on unholy sinners. But as the exchange says, God is also a loving God. He sent his son in our place. He sent his son so that his justice could fall on him instead of us. And in the exchange offered through his grace, we can exchange the righteousness of Christ for our sin through faith. And God, our holy God, accepts the payment of Christ in his justice. Every Sunday we gather on the Lord's Day to praise God that his justice that has been met. 
because he placed his wrath on his own son. Are you excited about that? Does that motivate you? Does that energize you? Does that consume you so that you cannot wait for Sunday to arrive so that you can once again join with others praising God that his wrath required by his justice has been fully met and we have been declared holy. We join together because we share Christ's work. We praise God corporately. Yet we are saved individually. For all eternity, we individually are, are the ones saved. It's not a corporate thing. You cannot get to heaven by just being part of the church. We are saved as individuals, and for all eternity, we will praise God individually as each one of us who has faith in Jesus Christ will look at the Lamb who was slain for us. He was slain in my stead. We will praise God for the justice displayed every time we look at the Lamb who was slain and is now risen. It will never grow old. Never. We praise God for His justice. We praise God corporately and individually for His justice. We praise God for His justice even as we wait for it to come. As I said, I thought I said, deer hunting has a lot of waiting involved, but Christian life is all about waiting. Our Christian life requires us to have a lot of waiting as we wait for God's justice to arrive and we deal with the wickedness of this world, we wait. Yet as we wait, we praise God. We praise God for His justice even as we wait for it to come. That's the lesson of Psalm 75. We praise God for His justice even as we wait for it to come. The Lord has a plan for justice. The Lord warns those deserving justice the Lord personally executes his plan. We praise God for his justice. Those are the four points that this psalm displays as believers bring us to the point that we praise God for his justice even as we wait for it to come. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it's been this morning to see this song of praise ultimately to you because we are informed once again that you are a just God. Yes, Father, we live in a world that is in rebellion against you. We live in a world that deserves your condemnation. But Father, we know that none of the rebellion against you will go without your wrath being poured out. Justice will be served. And Father, we're in awe that we can gather here today knowing that justice has been served on our behalf through another, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, if there's someone here today that's still shaking their hand in rebellion against you, I pray today that you would convict that person. Show them that your justice still awaits. It cannot be avoided. The only hope they have is to transfer your, your wrath to another. And Jesus Christ has made himself available. What a great display of love that is. Father, for all of us who have experienced that love, may our hearts be overflowing, 
so that we are filled with praise as we wait for your justice to come to his final culmination, the moment that we see our Lord return. Father, we thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.